important to remember the message that's been saying about today as far as grace, uh, because it's so easy to forget that it's God's undeserved favor that brings us salvation. And those of us who belong to Christ, we need to cling to God's grace. And those who are lost, you need to embrace God's grace because it's because of God's grace that I can stand before him and he has forgiveness for me that I can be made right with him. It's nothing that I've done. It's not how good I could be. It's solely by grace that I am saved and not by anything that I could do. And that's important to remember today as we look over wickedness and we look over ungodliness and we see how that exists within all of us, whether we're lost and saved or saved. So we're going we're gonna to read 4 through 5 in Psalm chapter 1. Psalm chapter 1, verse 4 through 5. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us and this time we could gather here and for the worship that we've gotten to participate together and to sing about your grace and think about your goodness and to think about why we're here as your followers of Christ, Lord. And I pray that just during this time you would just speak to our hearts and help us to see what might be standing between us and you this morning. And I pray that you would just help that if any of those in here are lost, that they would see your goodness and your grace and they would turn and trust you for salvation. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I separated this psalm into three different sermons. And in this one, I'm concluding the, uh, the sermon series out of this psalm. And in the first one, I focus mostly on uh, verse 1 and verse 2, and I spend more time on verse 1 than I did focusing on verse 2. Um, but within verse 1, we see that the life of a person who does not practice wickedness, uh, we see what that looks like. Um, we see that within verse 1, we see that uh, the life of a person who does not practice wickedness will find joy and contentment in not going down the path of the ungodly. That's the promise that verse 1 gives us. And in the last sermon, I focused on verse 2 and 3. I primarily spent a lot of time on uh, verse 2, but I talked about how God's instruction for our lives and how we can find delight in following God's instruction. And I also talked about how in order to live out God's instruction, we need radical transformation in our hearts. It's not about doing good things. Something inside of us needs to change. And that's what those verses show us. And then good things will flow out of that changed heart. And so we don't just need to act better. We need continuous change that we will always need as long as we're alive and breathing. And he tells us in, in verse 3 that we will be like trees planted by rivers of water which bears its fruit in its season and whose also leaves shall not wither. And that constant stream that we plant ourselves next to is God's instruction for our lives. And David tells us that we need it night and day in order to flourish. And that's meditation, which leads to saturation of our hearts, of God's truth and instruction. And that begins transformation within who we are as a person. And that was the song we sang about, near to the heart of God. The nearer we are to the heart of God, the more he begins to transfer, transform us and make us more like Christ. 
So I'll get nowhere in my spiritual walk without God transforming me. And God saves us by grace, and he transforms us as we allow him to renew our minds. So we become like Christ, and then good things flow out of that. And that's what we see, the fruit that David talks about in verse 3. But to do it in our own strength equals failure, no matter how many good things we do. Why? Because sin still lives in us. That's what Paul tells us. And there is still wickedness and ungodliness in all of us. And today we're going to focus on what wickedness looks like in this life and the fate that it will be met with at the end of time. And so wickedness corrupts all of us, but it will not be forever. And so verse 4 says, The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like the chaff which the wind blows away. And so he says, therefore, we need to know why that's therefore. We can look back and we can see that David is comparing the wicked to those who have put their faith in God and trusted his instruction. And as a result, they're like a tree planted by streams of water, which bears its fruit in its season. And he's saying that the wicked are not like that. They're like the chaff, which we'll get into in a little bit and what the chaff looks like in that illustration. And so some versions say ungodly instead of wicked, uh, but ultimately wickedness or ungodliness lives in all of us, in the saved and the lost. And the Hebrew word for wickedness is rasha. And uh, no, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I just happen to have a dictionary. Um, But it's a legal term. And it describes someone who breaks the law, and in this case, breaking God's law. And so someone who is guilty. Now, those of us who are in Christ, we are not guilty in the sense that we are not condemned before God because we're forgiven. It is by grace that we've embraced Christ. We've embraced his gift of salvation. So we stand before a holy God, holy. We do not deserve that. It is because of grace. But we still break God's law every day in our lives in some form or another. And all of us have a sinful nature, whether we are saved or we're lost. And so the first question we're going to ask is, what does wickedness look like within us? And then we're going to define what it means to be a wicked person, because that's really what verse 4 says, the wicked, those who are defined by wickedness. So to be called a wicked person is to to be defined as who you are. Um, But to have wickedness or ungodliness is a part of our sinful nature as humans, no matter how saved or lost we are. And so we could take this whole last three verses and we can make it purely evangelical, but I believe that there's some things uh, to be gained for us as Christians as far as wisdom goes. Um, This is a wisdom psalm, and God's wisdom has application for both the saved and the lost. Wisdom beckons those who are lost and don't belong to him. It beckons those to come to him. And wisdom builds us up as Christians so that we can become more like Christ. And so that's why it's not just going to be evangelical. We're going to see some things within ourselves that when we're honest with ourselves, we'll see some things in there that God says should not be in there. And so hang with me because I'm building up an image here of what real wickedness looks like. And it's not to identify wicked people, but so that we can identify wickedness. Because even though we as Christians are righteous before a holy God, there is still wickedness and ungodliness in us. We still break the law. And then we don't always see that until we're confronted with God's word. And that's what John, John uh, the apostle says in 1 John uh, chapter 1, 8 through 10. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, all righteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make, him be a, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so uh, to define wickedness, I think in order to define wickedness, we need to define what it's not. And so uh, we look at Galatians chapter 5, uh, verses 22 through 23. These are known as the fruits of the Spirit. And, uh, and so we're going to look at the fruits of the spirits and see what our lives should look like if, as followers of Christ. And it says, but the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And so Paul is saying that if we could live these things out, we would not break the law because, um, because it's, it's righteousness. And so ultimately, as Christians, it's only through the Holy Spirit manifesting these things through us that we develop these characters. Um, the more we allow God to change us, and the more these characteristics will begin to appear in our lives. We're not, we are not breaking the law if we live these things out. Unfortunately, we're imperfect humans who are not completely perfect at living these things out. And so that's what Rashad means, breaking the law. Paul says you won't break the law. There's no law against these character traits. And so we can't fake these. We, we can't fake them in the sense that I know within my own heart, when I'm, I'm just trying to pretend and make myself appear more righteous, that I have these qualities. And, and when it's coming from God's spirit living through me. There's definitely a difference if we're honest with ourselves. We can put on a show, um, but it doesn't mean that it's transformation within our hearts. And so we can act right and not be right on the inside. And, and we may fool each other, but we will never fool God. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can't fool ourselves. But, uh, so we're going to look at some opposites, opposites here. The opposite of love is hate, is wicked. Uh, the opposite of forbearance is impatience. The opposite of kindness is meanness. The opposite of goodness is corruption. The opposite of faithfulness is disloyalty. The opposite of self-control is self-indulgence. And so these are things that are wicked or ungodly because they are the opposite of God's character. That's the whole point of the fruit of the spirits. It's to make us more like Christ as far as the fruit of the spirits go. Um, and so I find within my own life different qualities that go against this because of my sinful nature. I can be mean in my life. I can lack patience. I can be unfaithful to God in many ways. And so Paul is showing us what it looks like to be a child of God. And if we belong to him and we're letting him change us, uh, these are things that will become dominant in our lives. Um, but, the, but not living these things out breaks God's law. And that's why we need this change. And that's why we need grace, which is what we sang about this morning. Because we're so imperfect that if it wasn't by grace, if it was dependent on what we do, we would never make it in this life. So Romans chapter 1, verse 29 through 32, gives us a little bit of more illustration here of um, what it looks like to live opposite of God's character in our lives. As Romans 1, 29 uh, through 32 they are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. 
They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. And although they know God's just sentence that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. And so I want to give a little bit of context to this passage because everything prior to this Um, I don't want to take it out of the original text, but the whole passage is about those who have completely rejected God. And so God has given them over to a depraved way of thinking. They are slaves to sin and they have no desire to listen to God or to seek uh, to do. All they do is seek to do evil. Okay, Uh, no Christian should be defined this way. Those of us who are in Christ, we should never be defined as uh, those seeking to do nothing but the opposite of what God tells us to do. But a lot of times we, uh, as Christians, we only want to focus on the verses that come prior to that, that talks about shameless acts and um, things that are going on in our culture today that oftentimes are embraced by the majority of our culture. And we want to focus on those things, the sexual immorality and things like that, because that's what's going on in our culture. That's something that we can see as clear as day. But when we think wickedness, it's important to go beyond those things because God is holy and his standard of good is a lot higher than our standard of good. And so to look at some of these things, because um, they certainly come out of a person who is depraved or can come out of a person that's depraved, but they can also come out of us as Christians. And so those words that were brought up in that passage, the end of the passage, greed, envy, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, arrogant, proud, boastful, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Now as Christians, these should not be things that define us and who we are, but they do rear their heads every once in a while as we're living through life. And these things, Paul says, deserves death because they break the law. So, We were talking about these things this morning because they sneak into our lives as Christians. These are the types of things that are subtle sometimes. They can slowly start to come out in our behavior, but they are things that sneak into our lives. And I don't know about you, but I see some of these things within me because I can find myself being greedy in this life. And I can find myself being envious of others and I can be deceitful. And I can have malice in my heart when someone does me wrong. And maybe I take a little verbal jab at them in return because I feel like they've hurt me. And so maybe I have that right to hurt them. I've been known to gossip. Sometimes I don't even realize I'm doing it. Just say a little bit of gossip about someone and kind of slander them in the process. I can be arrogant and prideful and unloving and without mercy in many different areas of my life. And uh, it's definitely not where it used to be, but it's definitely still there. Um, I hate this part of me. And all of us as Christians should hate this part of us. But when I'm not where I should be in my heart, these things come out. Why? Because sin still lives in me. And that's what Paul tells us. When he goes back and he says, the things that I don't do, I I don't do the things I should, and I do the things that I shouldn't. And of course, I'm paraphrasing with that. Um, But the whole point is that he tells us that there's still this sinful nature living in us as Christians. And sin is not just some action that we do every once in a while. It's a part of who we are. 
I do not fall short of the glory of God because I don't do the good things that a good person should do. I fall short of the glory of God because within the depths of my soul and who I am, I am not a good person, which is why I cling to God's grace every day because I would never make it on my own accord. I am not a good person and neither are you. And if that offends you, causes you to be angry, it's called pride and arrogance. And God says that that is ungodly. Paul said he had to die to self daily. Why? Because of your, our sinful nature that still causes us to be arrogant and full of pride and do the things that God hates. That's why we need to die to self daily. It's a being aware of where we are and it's not easy to do because some things that, sometimes those things like to hide in the crevices of our hearts. But um, if you think that you're above it, that's pride. And the Apostle John says that we deceive ourselves when we think that that doesn't exist within us and, and we make God out to be a liar. And as Christians, we can get so focused on those who are lost and depraved, and we can point our finger at the moral decline in our culture, all the while failing to stop and see the wickedness within our own hearts. Because it is in us, and God says it needs to die. We can become hypocrites and actors who put on a show so that we can please others around us. But if we ignore the sin that is in our lives, that's within us, then we begin to look no different than the rest of the world instead of being a light that stands out in the darkness. And when wickedness dominates us and how we behave and how we treat others, how we talk to others, we are only representing the world and slandering God's good name. If the world can look exactly the same as the church and how they treat others, then why do lost people need Jesus? So we have to stop pointing our fingers at the declining culture and point our fingers at ourselves. Because we're not going to reach this generation who indulges in sin until we humble ourselves and we acknowledge the sin in our own lives. And I'm not talking about this church. I'm talking about our culture in general. Uh, the church all across this country. I just want to make that uh, clear. You know, sometimes we think that the previous generations prior to this generation were more moral because they went to church, because they abstained from th certain things. And uh, in some ways they were. Uh, but... To say that the previous generations were more moral prior to this one is to ignore a whole mindset that existed and a lifestyle that existed that our country embraced. That's slavery and segregation that has happened in our country. And I don't want to hammer on the past. That's not the goal of this. Um, but that lasted for 189 years and segregation simply ended just a few short decades ago. So we're not that far ahead of it. But it was 189 years of an entire group of, uh, a group of people being enslaved, tortured, murdered, and rejected. And much of it was done at the hands of men and women who claimed to be followers of Christ. And what does this say? What did Paul say? He says, not only do they do them, not only do they practice such things, but they even applaud those who practice them. Now, not everybody was on board with this. We know that. Otherwise, it never would have been abolished. But many people were. And it was protected by our laws. 
And so let that sink in. This was protected by our laws. Gay marriage, abortion, and, any, and many other forms of evil are protected by our laws this day and age that we live in. So what's the difference? It's all evil. And all of it was embraced by many people. Many Christians thought it was just fine. They even used the Bible to justify it. And so we can overlook the evil that's always existed in our country. We can't overlook the evil that always has existed in our country, nor can we overlook the evil that exists in ourselves. The odds are is that if I grew up in that generation, I probably would have thought the same way. I would mean, be arrogant and foolish to think that I wouldn't have. Because that was the culture, that was the way people thought. Now I love this country, and, and I love the freedoms that I've been able to grow up with, that I've been able to enjoy. And so I, I'm grateful for men and women who gave their lives in the past, and even are currently giving their lives to protect my freedoms, and to protect the things that I often take for granted, people who are a lot braver than I am. And so I'm not going on a rant to say that this, this country has never been anything but evil and it's never done anything but pure evil. That's not the way that I think. Um, I think this country has done a lot of good. But the point is this, is that we can go through life as Christians thinking that we're good and become blind to the sin in our lives. Neglecting to bring it before God so that he can continue to sanctify us as his children. And sometimes we can embrace the things that our culture does. We may not own slaves and we may not do some of the things our current generation does, but we aren't perfect either. It's been so ingrained in us for our lives through our culture that life is about us. It's kind of chasing the American dream. Do what's best for you. And I found within my own life on a day-to-day -day basis that when I make my life about me, that's when wickedness tends to flourish within my heart. I become consumed with what I think is best for me, my luxuries, my freedoms, my life. That when anything threatens it, ungodliness begins to bring about sin in my life. And I obsess over things that cause me fear and lead to anger. And that's where many of us are in this country today. We cling so tightly to our comforts and our freedoms on both sides of the aisle, whether you're lost or saved, Democrat or Republican, Democrat or Republican, because those on this side are telling us that they're our enemies and those on that side are telling them that we're their enemies. And then we begin to act unmerciful and unloving towards one another because my best interest often trumps the other person's best interest. And as Christians, that's not supposed to be where we're at. And it keeps us from being a light when we let that become who we are. Because it affects how we treat people. And it keeps us from loving the way that Jesus has commanded us to. And it all stems from our sinful nature. And without God fixing it, we look no better than those who don't know Christ. And so there's a sinful nature that exists within us as Christians, and there's a sinful nature that exists within the heart of a lost person. And so we might ask ourselves, what's the difference between a saved and a lost person if they both have a sinful nature? That's a good question. 
And so a distinction needs to be made here between someone who is a follower of Christ, who has sin living in them, uh, versus someone who is defined as wicked, someone who continuously surrenders to that. And so someone who is truly a follower of Christ from the moment they put their faith in him are given a new heart. And there now exists within that person two natures. Uh, Paul talks about it. Jesus talks about it. The spirit versus the flesh. And so uh, now we have to feed our new nature so that we begin to grow more like Christ. And so the struggle for a Christian is that we, we've seen the truth. Our eyes have been opened and we know sin. And we know that sin and sinfulness no longer satisfies us. But there's still this part of us as Christians that's rebellious against God. We have one hand beckoning him, asking him to come near me, change my heart, make me more like Christ, help me to stand, lead me in your ways. But there also exists a sinful nature that at the same time is telling us that I don't need God and his way for my life, that I can do this on my own and without his way. And those two fight and whichever one we feed flourishes in our lives. And that comes out in selfishness and pride and arrogance and how we treat others. The nature that we feed dominates our hearts. Feasting on God's word and spending time with him in prayer and seeking his will causes us to be more like Christ. And then our behavior begins to change. God does this in us. It's not just acting good. It's letting God change us so that good flows out of us. And, um, and that is the nature of a Christian. And then we talk about those who are wicked, which is what this last three verses talks about. Those who are wicked, they're not just having a sinful nature, but their entire life is lived out of wickedness. This is completely different in the sense that they have a posture of both hands pushing against God, rejecting his will altogether, and living according to their own way. And the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that they are a slave to sin. It owns them, and they cannot see how unbeneficial their way is in this life and the road that it's taking them down. And they may do good things. They may walk old ladies across the street. They may seek to world in world hunger. But that does not prove that they're good. That only proves that they are made in the image of God and therefore capable of doing good. But the first commandment that God gives us out of the two is to love God with all that we are. And so to reject God is to live in sin. It's to break his law. The goal of being a Christian is not to do good things. And sometimes we get consumed with that as we think because we're a Christian, now we have to just do good things and that's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to get into heaven and to escape hell. That's not the goal of being a Christian. If you stop there where you're a Christian, you will never grow deeper in your walk with God. But the goal of being a Christian is to know God and to be known by him. Heaven without God would be hell. It would be separation from God. God is what makes heaven good. It's his presence. And our relationship with God is the prize. Doing good without God is a waste of time. Because our deeds only last a while and most of them are forgotten after we do them. And so after we are long gone, but God is eternal. So it's not just a matter of loving God or a matter of loving people, to be righteous means that we love God and we love people. Both of those things, those who are considered wicked, reject God. They may love people, but they reject God. And that's the first commandments that we're given. 
Those first four commandments focus on a relationship with God and how we're supposed to be towards Him. Those who reject God and embrace self are wicked. And so there's another category that seems slightly different, but it's really the same as lost. Um, It's those who claim to be followers of Christ, but have never given their lives to Him. There are those who claim to be followers of Christ, but their posture is exactly like the world's. Both hands pushing God away and rejected Him. They say that they believe in Him, but they do exactly the same thing as the lost. They still have the same desires as the lost. They have no intention of giving up the things that lost people pursue because they are lost. Because their motto is, I believe in Jesus and I'm saved by grace and once saved, always saved. So I don't need to change because I'm not saved by what I do or don't do. And therefore, I don't have to pursue pursue God's will. I can pursue my own will. I don't need to pray. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to read my Bible. I can still do the same things before that made me feel good and not worry about it because I'm covered by God's grace. They may go to church and they may have said a prayer. They may have been baptized. But their idea of believing in Jesus for salvation is a lot different than what the Bible says faith is. True faith that leads to salvation. We can say, I believe in Jesus. We can say we have a faith in a lot of things. We believe in a lot of things, but that does not mean we have faith that leads to salvation. At some point when I was a child, I, I was told that the moon was made of cheese, and I believed it because I was naive. And we believe a lot of things as children that we don't believe now, now that we've grown up. You know? And so that's not the type of belief we're talking about. That's not the type of belief that the Bible is talking about. To believe in Jesus means to believe that he came, he died, and was raised from the dead, but you also believe that he is Lord. It's both. It's not one or the other. Because if you believe that he died for your sins, but not that he's Lord, then you're not going to give your life to him. You're going to stay exactly where you're at. And if you believe that he is Lord, but not that he died for your sins, then it's going to be up to you to be made right with God. You're going to obey him, most likely, but it's going to be you that makes yourself right with God. And so you cannot separate Lord and Savior and obtain salvation. You need both And that's exactly what Paul tells us. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's both. But to confess that he is Lord is to give him your life. To say that he's in charge of your life. Why? Because he actually knows what's best for you. And so imagine that. The creator of all things, knowing how your life best operates. And that's why we can trust him with our lives. But if he isn't Lord of your life, then sin is Lord of your life. And if sin is Lord of your life, then you're lost. If you've never given your life to him, you're lost. Don't be deceived. To believe in Jesus means to hand your life over to him and trust him to guide you through this life. If you haven't believed in him in that way, then there is a very good chance you're not saved. That's what James says. The brother of Jesus says this. He says that faith without works is dead. And essentially what he's saying in that passage is that uh, if your faith is without works, it's dead. Faith can't save you if it's not changing you, basically, is what he's saying. So, 
so a wicked person is not only someone who does certain immoral things, but one who has rejected God and his will for their lives. And that comes out in the form of someone who calls themselves a Christian as well as someone who rejects Christ and the idea of Christ altogether. David goes on to say they are like the chaff which the wind drives away. And so I spent a lot of time explaining uh, wickedness and what it means to be defined by wickedness. Um, But this verse is not talking about those who belong to Christ and struggle with their sin. It's talking about the wicked person who has surrendered their lives to wickedness. They're a slave to sin, as I've said. It owns them and they do not seek God. This verse says that they're like the chaff. You know, chaff is the shell that's around the husk of wheat. It's, it's the part of the wheat that the farmer doesn't like. It's a very light uh, thing, the husk is. I mean, it's easily blown around by the wind. And that's the image we get here. The way that a farmer would separate the wheat from the chaff is they would take a winnowing fork and they would go to a place where there was wind. They would throw it up and the wind would blow away the chaff and then all that would remain would be the wheat. Which was what the only part of the wheat that was desirable. So the chaff is like the wicked person and everything they stand for. Wickedness and those who cling to it are a part of this world that God does not want. He creates this world for good, not for wicked. And one day he will drive the chaff away. These people are defined. These are people who are defined by wickedness. They reject God and what he says. And that's what Luke Uh, Chapter 3, verse 17, this is John the Baptist. He, He says, he's speaking of Jesus. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. Jesus calls all people to repentance. That's one of the first, that's the first thing Jesus said. One of the first things he says is to repent and turn away from your sin. There will be one day where his invitation to repent and trust him will no longer be available. And Jesus is coming back to make all things right, to destroy evil, along with those who have embraced evil over God. Verse 5 and 6 says, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. I'm not entirely sure how I feel about the way uh, CSB uh, kind of translates this, where it says the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Many of the other versions say the way of the ungodly will perish. Because, okay, wickedness does lead to ruin. That way of wickedness leads to ruin. Um, but it seems a little bit different to me in the, in the sense of leading to ruin and a way of life going to perish if I interpret that right, uh, that the way of the wicked will perish. It's a whole way of life. Uh, Over in Proverbs, it says there's a way that seems right, but leads to death. Um, So there's a whole way of living, a whole way of thinking. And so this could be interpreted that it is not just evil people who will perish, but a whole way of life that exists will be destroyed. That if God merely got rid of all the sinners but did not destroy the wicked way, it would do no good because that would still be an option that would exist. But there will be no evil 
when God gets through with judgment. And so if you look around in the world and you see all of the wickedness and you see all of the pain and suffering that exists, there is a day where God is going to make all of those things right. He's going to make all things new. But to be clear, we're talking about hell for those who reject God. Um, this is not an easy topic to talk about. And uh, it sometimes is a little uncomfortable. A lot of times people ask the question when you bring up hell, that if God is a good, loving God, why would he send people to hell? And that's a good question to think about. The answer is, is that he doesn't send people to hell. We choose it. When we choose sin instead of him, you have to turn away from God to choose and embrace sin for your lives. And he'll let you do that because he loves you. He loves you enough to let you make your own decision on which way you'll go in life. But you have to walk away from him to embrace that. He loves you enough to let you make your own choice. But you're choosing separation from him if you do. I'm not into fear-mongering, though. I don't spend most of my time talking about hell. Um, you know, oftentimes it's said that we need to preach more hell, and I think in some senses it's true, because I don't remember preaching it that much within my sermons, to be honest. Um, but the idea has been within the past is that if we say, if we talk about hell enough, we scare people into a relationship with Christ. But Paul tells us something different. Paul tells us that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance, not just talking about hell. And so am I saying that we don't talk about hell? Of course not. I'm talking about it now. So don't misunderstand me. But Jesus talks about hell at least uh, somewhere around 70 times. That's, I've always heard that that's more than any other place in the Bible. So we have to talk about it. But you know what word he uses way more than that? Father. Over 160 times he talks about Father. And so the idea is not to scare people into coming to Christ. If you point a gun to someone's head and you threaten to pull the trigger, they're going to say anything they can do to get out of being shot in the head. And that's exactly what happened to me when I was six years old, metaphorically speaking. Nobody held a literal gun to my head. But that's exactly what happened to me. I was terrified of the idea of going to hell. You know, and so I woke up in the middle of the night to uh, a dream that I had had that was about hell because you'd always hear of different preachers at revivals and stuff. That's what they hammered on back then. Um, and so I woke up and I went to my parents and I said a prayer, but nothing changed inside of me. I didn't want God. I was lost. Thought I was saved, but I didn't love God and I didn't want his will for my life. There's a big difference between that. You know, I could tell the difference once I came to Christ. Um, once I came to Christ, I began to realize that it wasn't all about getting into heaven and escaping hell. You know, the people of Israel understood that a little better than we do sometimes. They weren't faithful to God, but God was always faithful to them. And God called them out of Egypt so he could be their people he could be their God and they could be his people. It was a relationship and God was their prize. That's why they built the tabernacle and the temple so that God would come down and be with them. And sometimes they didn't always understand that, what it meant for God to be with them, but God wanted to be with them. When we 
When a sacrifice was made, God would forgive their sins and come down and be with his people. And Jesus is our Lord and he's our Savior, but he's also a sacrifice. So that when we put our faith in him, God forgives us of all of our sin and he comes down and he lives in us and with us and he walks with us. It's about God. And the reason so many people reject God and embrace sin is because they have yet to taste his goodness. Sometimes they don't see it through us. They don't see his goodness through us. I can say that about my life. But our joy is found in God and God alone. Heaven is a bonus. If you come to know God and to be known by him, I promise that you will not be disappointed and you will never be the same. Judgment is real. Hell is real. But God wants to be your father. He wants to show goodness to you, to give you what is good, not to control and ruin your life, but to give you what is good. That's what Jesus says time and time again. God wants to give you good gifts. He wants to provide what's good. He will provide your needs if you trust him. Not because he needs you, not because he's yearning for you, but because that's who he is. He loves us even when we reject him. He is worth it and everything else will perish, including sin and wickedness. And if you cling to that in this life, If you hold on to that way of thinking and living, you will perish with it. He is worth it. When he makes all things new, sin will no longer be. And he waits for the lost and the one who rejects him. One day he will wait no more. One day... There will be eternity separated from him for those who reject him in this life. And so this message has been twofold. For those of us who belong to Christ, we have two natures. Those two natures fight against each other. We can see that, how he comes out and how we talk to our spouse, our friends, and our children. And we can see those two natures fighting each other. Uh, for, for us as Christians, sometimes that nature dominates our hearts. And, and so that's why we, we sing about grace today. We sing about grace and how great it is, but sometimes we need to remember as Christians that grace doesn't just save us, it changes us. And that's that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. I see the truth. And I strive for that. There's this other version, I'm confident you guys have never heard it. It's a Christian rock band, so... um, Whatever you think of that music is fine, but um, there's a middle of the sign. In the middle of the song, it's it's kind of a verse that kind of alludes to that song. It says, oh, how sweet the sound, talking about grace. I know it saves, but is it changing a wretch like me? And oh, my God, how sweet is the sound. I once was blind, but now I just look away. Stepping in and out of the shadows. And that's where many of us can get as Christians, stepping in and out of the shadows. The thing about being in a shadow is that you can still see clearly, right? But there's still darkness that surrounds you. It's still darkness present in your life. And sometimes we as Christians can get so, we can avoid those things that that are making us more unchristlike, like um, And it can grow in our lives to overshadow us. 
Um, and then those of us who have rejected God, who have nothing to do with him this morning, maybe you're lost, you've never given your life to Christ. Jesus isn't calling you out of the shadows, he's calling you out of the darkness. Because until you come to Christ, you're living in darkness. You're, not, you're like a blind man living in darkness. That even if that blind man could somehow see, if it's so dark, he wouldn't know the difference. A blind man living in darkness. But once Jesus opens our eyes and sheds life on, light on things, we begin to see. And he can, if we put our faith in him, he draws us out of the darkness and we can begin to see the difference. So many people ask the question, you're like, how do I know that I'm saved? You know the difference when you follow him because you go from loving the things of the world, loving sin to loving God and wanting him at the center of your life. And you begin to leave those things behind that you once turned to. There's so many things that I turned to before I came to Christ. There's so many things that I indulged in that if I thought that if I just had this, I would feel good because I was going through some dark struggles in my life for a long period. But then every time I would turn to those things, they never really satisfied. And I can look back now and see that. I couldn't see it when I was in the middle of it, but I can look back now and see that. How did I ever think that that would bring joy to my life? How did I ever think that that would satisfy my soul in the way that only Christ has been able to? You'll see the difference. It's the difference between being asleep and awake that once you've woken up, you know that you were sleeping. And so... Those of us who are followers of Christ, he's beckoning us out of the shadows to examine our hearts, to see the areas of sin and the wickedness that exists within us so that we can bring that before him and he can change it and he can begin to make us more like Christ. And those of you who this morning who may not have accepted Christ into your life, he's calling you out of the darkness and you will not be disappointed if you give him your life and trust him with it. And so we're going to go into a time of pastoral prayer. And... Uh, I just want you to consider that through all this time of prayer that God has a life that is, that is without selfishness and, and sin for those who belong to us without letting those things flourish in our lives. And he has a better life for those who are lost and haven't put their faith in him. So we're going to take this time to pray. Um, I just want you to think about those things as we pray.